With the first pick in the 2010 NFL Draft, the St. Louis Rams select Sam Bradford, quarterback, Oklahoma. Welcome to episode number 17 of the Sportscasters. It is the first annual NFL Draft Spectacular. My name is Steve Bennett. I am with Don Russ. How are you doing today, Donnie? Awesome. And we have a special guest that we will bring in in a second. But first, let's set you up for the show. Like I said, it is our Draft Spectacular. The draft is, uh, starts Thursday night. Uh, finally, some NFL football that doesn't invo- involve lawyers. Uh, I know I'm excited. I'm sure... Uh, mostly everyone out there is. We're going to have a really cool interview with Wes Bunting from the National Football Post, uh, a really smart, brilliant guy. He's going to talk about the specific players in the draft, uh, who he likes, who he doesn't like. Uh, we also have an interview with Kevin McGuire, who is uh, from the College Football Examiner, and he also writes a little bit about video games. So it should be a cool interview with him as he talks a little bit about college football and uh, the draft from the college football perspective of things, you know, and how... Uh, some of these players performed in college football and how that will prepare them for the pros. Also, some video game questions will sneak in there just for a little bit of fun. And uh, the, finally, we have Pete Williams, the author of the book, The Draft. And uh, Pete's going to join us to talk about his book and his experiences with the NFL Draft. Kind of talk about the draft as a process. So we have it covered from all ends. I'm pretty excited. What do you think, Don? Sounds good. Let's do it. All right, uh, before we get to f- three things, uh, a couple of uh, brief announcements. First, I want to thank Jimmy Brawley uh, for filling in for you last week on oh, three yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, definitely did a good job. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, hopefully, you're still listening. Um, also, we want, to, uh, we want to acknowledge the end of a fantastic USHL career for our main man, Anthony Day. He finally is back from the Midwest, home with us for a few months before he goes uh, to Yale, and he's going to join us for three things tonight. Might as well be as good a time as any to bring him in. How you doing tonight, Anthony? Doing good, guys. How are you? How does it feel to be home in Buffalo? Feels good, except it's rain. I can't hit the course, so I'm pretty disappointed about it, but <laughs> got to battle through it. That's why I have golf domes. Yeah, exactly. It's been, uh, it's been rainy. I don't know what. It's a little bit of a heat wave today in Buffalo. Not sure what that's all about, but we'll be back into the right, 50s here. in another day or two, I'm sure. So we have that to look forward to. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention is just uh, we have been doing reaction podcasts to all of the Sabres playoff games, and uh, we also did a podcast with Deuce McAllister, and uh, all those things are at our website, www.sports-casters.com, and uh, you can also find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. The show is at Sports. Sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Likes Sports with two S's. Yep. I am at Diversity23, and Anthony is at AWD23. And just a shout-out to my younger brother because he's so frustrated with his lack of follower-building <laughs> momentum. So we will send his name out. He is Diversity61. Or no, that's not even correct, is it? No, he's like he changed it to Greg Day 19. Greg Day 19. So he is Greg Day 19. Follow him. He was been on the show a few weeks ago. Uh, he's a great follow. He has really interesting tweets. He often uh, tweets about rainbows. 
and um, spells a lot of words right. Spells everything right, and uh, so definitely follow him. Anyway, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Let's move on to other business. Finally, after seven long weeks, we can celebrate. There will be a football season. U.S. District Judge Susan Richard Nelson orders an immediate end to the lockout. So I'm ready. Let's get your season tickets. Let's go. Football's uh, going to start. Well, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Uh, apparently... The players will be allowed into team facilities today. I'm not sure if any of them took up that offer. But Malcolm Jenkins was spotted at the uh, Saints facility. Was he? Yep. So they were allowed to go, but some organization's owners were told to not open uh, workout rooms, and so they were allowed in the building, and they weren't really allowed to talk to media, I don't believe, in, in the building. And, until, and the NFL has responded to this order by filing an appeal. So... This sounds like a big deal. Adam Schefter made it out to be something of a big deal, but it's pretty much nothing. <laughs> yeah, the judge uh, has an option to put a stay on the ruling. So, in other words, the lockout would stay as it is until the appeals court decides to uphold the ruling that the judge came down with or to overturn it. it so that would basically mean the lockout would just still be a lockout. It seems like something they would overturn. I'm not positive about that, but... I mean, I don't know any legal things. It just seems like the NFL is pretty confident it will be appealed. But if it doesn't, that's when it gets interesting. Uh, An attorney for the players, Jim Quinn, was quoted, and I'm reading off an ESPN article that says, they better act quickly because as of right now, there's no stay, and presumably players could sign with teams. There's no guidelines as of right now, so they have to put something in place quickly. So it sounds like, and there would be no cap again because it would be like 2010. so if the appeal does not stand up, it could make things very interesting. Yeah, so let's hope for that. Let's <laughs> just hope for, for chaos and let's just uh Either that or get go. it fixed. Hopefully the threat of chaos will have them come to some sort of uh, agreement. All right, my first thing. What an incredible first round of the NHL playoffs yeah. we have had so far. It has been the best first round I can remember in my lifetime. For the last seven days straight, there has been an overtime game. There is the possibility for as many as four game sevens. There was only one sweep, uh, one five-game series. Uh, Detroit obviously swept Phoenix. Phoenix Phoenix forgot to show up. They got one foot out of the door (laughs) and into Winnipeg. You know, it's funny. I saw a tweet by Annie Mealy, and he said that the weather is a big reason he decided to uh, go to Phoenix. Phoenix. But I I hope he knows they're moving to Winnipeg, and it gets (laughs) to be like minus 40 out there. But uh, Nashville won their first ever series. It was a really exciting series against... Uh, the Ducks. Portimo. Yep. Uh, San, San Jose won their series in overtime yesterday. A crazy series against the Kings. Uh, the Blackhawks has come back from a 3 to nothing deficit to tie that series at 3-3. Three to three. The, the roof is caving in in Vancouver. They don't know what to do. Boston and Montreal is 3-2. to two. The Bruins are the first team to win a home game in game number five. 
The Penguins have blown a 3-1 to series lead to Tampa Bay. That's going to Game 7. The Sabres and the Flyers will play Game 7. The Rangers, like the Knicks, made sure to get out of the playoffs as fast as possible. That only <laughs> won five games. But wow, what a first-round series. Just very, very, very exciting. Anthony. All right, guys. My first thing is, um, is Luongo. If you've um, been watching the Vancouver series, it's kind of funny to see that they, uh, they benched their franchise goalie, spent 12 years left on his contract, and it's just interesting to see how, <laughs> you know, how that relationship will go because now, I mean, he's starting game seven just because Corey Schneider looked like ripped his hamstring out of his leg, but it's just going to be funny to see how he takes it and how uh, how that goes on from here. Yeah, I mean, talk about a change of events. Uh, the guy led the team to the best regular season in the NHL. They they were the number one seed. They had a 3 nothing lead. Everything was going fine, and then they just the roof caved in on Roberto Luongo, and he seems lost. He has no confidence. Uh, I don't want to use the cliche, but I will. It seems like beach balls are going in on him. <laughs> I've seen a Photoshop picture of him trying to make a glove yeah. save with a beach ball behind him. <laughs> uh, he just, it's just uh, it's not going good at all for him. And uh, proof things are going bad for Vancouver is their penalty shot the other night. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but the oh, guy. Oh, man. Or wait, was that Pittsburgh? What? No, that's Vancouver, that right? Was that was or Connor. Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah that's that Pittsburgh. <laughs> Did you see that, Dan? No. Uh, one of the Penguins had a penalty shot, and he just whiffed it. He Ooh. just missed the puck. It just Ouch. stayed behind him. Yeah, I, I've been watching uh, Luongo pretty closely since the Olympics because uh, I, he has this label as kind of like one of the elite goalies, and I've just I've never seen it. Granted, I don't see a lot of Vancouver hockey, but he always seems to he fight the puck. The playoffs either. Yeah, he never does it during the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, they, he won. They won the gold, but I mean, that was an all-time, all-world great team. So right. they want to kind of right. despite him, despite him, right? Not because of him. Um, my second thing really isn't much of an opinion, but uh, just a little nice story, feel-good story. Ian Kennedy, who is a pitcher for the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks, the day after he has his first child, he pitches uh, one of the all-time best game, the best game of his career. A 4 nothing shout-out to the Phillies, uh, complete game, 10 strikeouts, 3 hits. Uh, congrats to Ian Kennedy on a big game and a, uh, his kid. Former New York Yankee. Former New York Yankee. As great as the first round of the NHL playoffs have been, the first round of the NBA playoffs has been terrible. The Memphis Grizzlies, as a number eight seed, have a three to one lead on the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, Denver has a three to, or Oklahoma City has a three to one lead over Denver. The Bulls have a three to one lead over Indiana. Miami has a three to one lead over Philadelphia. Boston has already swept the Knicks, who were in the playoffs for like five minutes. It seemed like. <laughs> Uh, Atlanta has a 3-1 to lead over Orlando. The only interesting first-round series is the Lakers and the Hornets, which is tied up at 2. And maybe you could say a little bit Dallas and Portland, which is 3-2 to Dallas. But they drag this first out round out forever. It takes forever in a day, and it stinks. It's boring. There's no interesting storylines. For what is supposed to be a great NBA playoffs, it's off to a very, very, very poor start. Yeah, NBA sucks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my, my second thing um, is the whole hit to the head, the story, his story going around the NHL right now. It's just funny. Like I was watching for the game yesterday. I mean, there's just a, like a mild hit, and it, I mean, a shoulder goes to a shoulder. But you know, the next thing announced says, "Oh, the league will look at that tomorrow." It's just getting out of hand. Like everyone thinks a hit, a hit is a hit to the head, and everyone wants suspension. It's just like 
And I think it's an NHL small. Like, I mean, uh, Mike Richards should have been suspended for the Aaron Connolly. He's not, and now everything's a gray area. And, I mean, it's just a frenzy of, you know, analysts and all this nonsense. It's just getting annoying, and I need to take care of it. Yeah, the uh, like you said, that gray area. The gray area is usually a small area, but in hockey it seems to be this area that's like a mile wide as far as hits go. There's no consistency to suspensions. Uh, Steve and I kind of touched on this in the the uh, post-game uh, podcast after that Mike Richards hit, but there's no consistency at all, and you're right. Uh, they Until they have some sort of consistency, it'll never be fixed. Yeah, it's been a joke. Uh, I think the NFL uses a pinwheel to decide suspensions. <laughs> Maybe they play a game up in the tail on the donkey uh, to the side if a player gets suspended, but it's it's been brutal. My last thing, uh, this isn't any sort of major revelation, but sports fans, they're all pricks. Every sports fan, like nothing will bring out uh, the inner jerk in people like a sports series. And this is, this is for everybody too, uh, Sabres fans, Flyers fans. People come out of the woodwork to act like idiots when it comes to sporting events, not like I said, not that this is surprising. I've calmed down a little bit now that I'm approaching 30, but you can't even blame it totally on age because there's grown men that act like idiots at sporting events. and uh, It's funny. I guess it is what makes sports what it is, but when you start uh, beating people with bricks or chasing people out of stadiums, that's, that's when you take it a little bit too far. The only real difference between them is uh, you were born in a different city. So the sports fans that result to violence uh, – Maybe uh, take a step back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for passion in sports, but you know, I just feel like sports should be a community where people should be able to come into the visiting arena and support their team without fear, like you said, of being hit with a brick or being harassed or anything like that. It just annoys me uh, when fan takes it takes it too far, you know. So I just think that everyone needs to chill out a little bit. And uh, just remember that they're people, too. <laughs> All right. My third thing, speaking of people, Brandon Marshall, what is going on in your <laughs> life, buddy? You got stabbed in the stomach by your wife. What, Don, you're married. I'm not married yet. Okay. But uh, you're married. Any chance your wife's going to be stabbing you in the gut anytime soon? I don't think so. I think if you are in a marriage and at any point during the marriage you are stabbed in the gut by your significant other, that might be a clue that it's time to end said marriage. Yeah, yeah, something's wrong. Yeah, we're very, very protective of females in this world as we should be in terms of abuse and things like that. But there needs to be a foundation or a charity set up for football players who are stabbed by their wives, some kind of a support group, somewhere where Brandon Marshall can turn and uh, be comforted <laughs> and um, you know guided correctly because I'd hate to see him stabbed again. That's, that's right. And I mean, not to uh, make light of something tragic, but uh, Chris Henry's wife slash girlfriend basically killed him. Yes, she drove him basically into a ditch and he cracked his head open, sadly, on the ground. Um, these another, guys, these another guys poor these matchmakers. Yeah, they need better matchmakers. Yeah, some of these marriages just were not made in heaven. No. And Brandon Marshall's is one of those uh, that was not made in heaven. Reminds me more of the Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth <laughs> than uh, a successful marriage. Maybe Donnie and Michelle. So far. Yeah, it just. Uh, no stab wounds yet. Stab wounds mean end of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Don. Or Anthony. Um, my third thing is, I don't know if you have saw this yet, but um, Tiger Woods is out of commission for a while. He uh, yes. allegedly sprained his MCL or, and then hurt his Achilles. 
took third on the Masters, and um, kind of it's tough to see him go. And I mean, I think he's he's almost done. I mean, he's gonna be out probably next three tournaments. Hopefully, he comes back to the U.S. Open, but it's just sad. That guy just can't get anything going, and then these injuries pop out, and I think just it's the end of an era really for for golf and for Tiger. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not the biggest golf fan, so maybe you can clue me in. And I know he's under a microscope, being who he is, but he seems to always be injured. And for a non-contact sport, yeah, like no, how do you get injured yeah, that was, often? Yeah, I was watching the Golf Channel day, obviously, and um, they like went through his like history. And I mean, he had um, he had like a cyst when he was younger, had to get that removed, and then obviously he had uh, he had uh, ACL issue before the U.S. Open, and then. During the U.S. Open, he tore the ACL, so then after the U.S. Open, he had that reconstructed. And now, I guess, he tweaked it. The, the shot, I saw the shot. It was um, the 17th hole of the, of the third round, and, like, he was just kind of in the pine straw. And, like, he, I mean, he, I mean, I could see his knee buckling, but I don't think all that damage. I mean, it's just kind of weird that he heard, you could bang your knee up so bad on a golf straw. But right. He, you would think the amount he... Like he uh, you would think as as often like, as he is injured, people would just be dropping at uh, driving ranges. Yeah, you think you know the six year old on a Sunday foursome would drop dead playing golf. Tiger Woods get hurt, but yeah. So I don't know. It's just tough, and I, I don't know. He can't catch a break, and you say it's, he's got you girls s- to go, hold, go, go home to. You say it's sad. I say fiesta means party. Good riddance. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye, uh, yeah. Tiger Woods. Uh, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. If I never had a look at this guy again, I'd be happy. Uh, I'm. Tickled that it seems like Jack Nicholson's record or Nicholas's record for come on, man, he's an addict. <laughs> most uh, most wins is safe. Most major victories is safe. So uh, goodbye, Tiger. Um, hey, Steve. Yes. Steve, I kind of before thing because I'm just like on the computer right now. Have you guys ever seen Danny Heatley um, YouTube videos of like the impersonator during yeah. his interview? Yep. Oh my god, you got to play one of those for the, for the audience. I think they're the funniest things ever, and it just popped my mind because. Um, Yesterday, uh, after they won Game Six, like uh, they interviewed him, and I could just like I couldn't like listen to it without laughing at the videos I've seen. I, you should play one of those for the for the audience soon because it's, it's the funniest thing ever. Yeah, if you search Danny Heatley on YouTube, they they pop right up. That's pretty hilarious. I've never seen it. I'll check it out. Great. Yeah, you'll have to check them out. All right, that's it for three oh, things man. today. I want to thank Anthony for joining us. Uh, the rest of the way, it's going to be an interview with with Wes Bunting next. After that, we'll do a real quick book club update. Uh, after that, an interview with Pete Williams. Uh, then we're going to do a little fantasy football round one mock draft and close the mega draft spectacular out with an interview with Kevin McGuire and then pick four. So we're going to take a quick break right now and be back with Wes Bunting of the National Football Post. All right, our next guest on the Sportscasters is from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Elizabethtown College near Hersey, Pennsylvania. He currently works for the National Football Post, where he is the head of uh, scouting over there, and uh, he recently published his top 100 prospects for the NFL draft, and he is going to join us today on the Sportscasters. How are you doing today, Wes? I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing very good, you know. I'm excited for this draft. It's been it's been one of those long winters where we've been have to having to listen about lawyers and lockouts and things like that. So I'm excited for you know the draft and and some actual NFL stuff. So I'm sure you feel the same way. No, oh, absolutely. It's a great time of year, and as I like to say, Christmas is only two days away. Yeah, that's for sure. 
How do you feel about the new format? I know this is the second year with the draft being on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. How, how do you like it? Did you, do you feel like it was a hit, or do you prefer the old system? No, I'm a fan of the new system. Um, it spaces the draft out a bit. It's become a phenomenon in football. Outside the Super Bowl, people love to watch the draft. Everyone's undefeated at this time. It's a great way to add talent to your team and get fans excited. So I was a bit skeptical at times because I like to just veg out and eat food all day on Saturday, Sunday. But now with Thursday, Friday, Saturday format, another day of draft is okay by me. Absolutely. I, I, I kind of rather enjoy it as well. I like the primetime aspect of round one. Um, anytime you throw a list out like the top 100 prospects and give that many opinions, you're bound to have some controversies. And I know I've kind of been trolling a few message boards just to see what people thought of the list as I knew you were going to be on today. And one thing a lot of people were surprised at is A.J. Green being at number one. I know there's a lot of controversy on whether A.J. Green is the number one wide receiver in the draft. Some people prefer Julio Jones. I'm just wondering why you came to the, how you came to the uh, conclusion that A.J. Green was number one and specifically why you favored him over Julio Jones, who you had at number five with a red arrow pointing down. Well, I think with Julio Jones, you're not getting the same type of dynamic playmaker. Grant Julio Jones ran faster at the combine. But on tape, I think A.J. Green plays faster. He's the most fluid route runner I've seen for a big wide receiver, meaning 6'2-plus. Uh, he has the ability to run the route tree. He can also get vertically down the field. And I think when you look at guys who potentially can be blue-chip caliber players in the NFL or upper echelon players of their position in the NFL, I think A.J. Green has the best chance of any prospect in this year's draft of achieving that, and that's why I put him as the number one overall prospect. I know when you're talking about number one or number two, you're kind of splitting hairs, but a lot of the – I'm a big Saints fan, so a lot of the fans on the Saints message boards are also big LSU fans, and they were screaming about Patrick Peterson not being number one – but, again, that's splitting hairs between number one and number two. Maybe my question is, what do you like about Patrick Peterson? And if you draft him, what what can you expect? Is he another one of those kind of safe picks? I don't think he's quite as safe as A.J. Green, but he's a pretty safe pick in his own right. What you're going to get is a guy who can press off the line, be physical and reroute, and has the fluidity for a big corner to turn and run and track the football down the field. Plus, when he gets his hands on the football, he's dynamic in the open field, gives you some added return and punt return ability. And overall, I just think this guy has the making of being the next shutdown corner in the NFL. I know sometimes when you rank the top 100, that doesn't necessarily mean that the number one player would be your choice for number one if you were picking. Obviously, teams have specific needs. If you were number one, you were picking, if you were Carolina, you're picking number one. Would you take the wide receiver in A.J. Green? Would you address the quarterback situation? I know they play in the NFC South where they have to deal with Drew Brees and um, Atlanta's, uh, I don't know what, Matt Ryan and um, Josh Freeman. Would you address quarterback if you were Carolina or would you take the safe wide receiver pick or maybe a defensive player? No, I would not take a quarterback. I would take A.J. Green at this stage. Patrick Peterson would be in the conversation, but... I just think you have Jimmy Clawson in place in Carolina right now. You have David Geddes from Baylor, who you drafted in the sixth round last year. 
Brandon LaFell, another LSU cat. I believe they took him in the third round. Steve Smith there. You had A.J. Green. That's an extremely talented wide receiving core and gives Paulson a chance to be very successful. And I think they let Jimmy Paulson fail as a second-round pick before just throwing him to the Wolves and getting rid of him and taking a quarterback with the first overall pick. One name that I've seen very high on your list that I've seen much lower on mock drafts is Mark Ingram. I've seen him in the 20s. 20 to 30 range mostly. You have him at number eight. What is it you like about Mark Ingram that others don't? And where do you see him fitting in at, at the draft and being selected? Yeah, with Mark Ingram, you have one of the more gifty short area athletes in the entire draft. He doesn't run as well as Ryan Matthews, who won 11 overall last year, the San Diego Chargers. But he's better in tight areas. He accelerates well. He drops his pad level. And he can make people miss, maintain balance, and accelerate. I think when you have that, he's a guy who can carry the ball 20 to 25 times a game, rush for 1,300-plus yards in a year, and be effective down by the red ball. We're in Buffalo, New York, and uh, the Bills have a lot of very important pick facing them. Uh, number three overall in the draft. The last time they drafted this high, they drafted Mike Williams from Texas at number four. It set the franchise back quite a bit. What would you do if they're the if you were the Bills? Would you address quarterback, or would you just take the best defensive player available when you pick at three? No, I wouldn't take a quarterback. Um, I think the value of this quarterback um, class is in the second, third round range for Stanley, Ponder, Bolton, Kaepernick. Uh, if I'm the Buffalo Bills, I look for the best player available. That offensive line needs a ton of work. I look at Tyron Smith, the kid from USC. I look at Cam Jordan from Cal. I look at Nick Fairley from Auburn. I look at Von Miller from Texas A&M. But they just need to improve that front four or front five, whether it's offensive or defensive, if they want to compete consistently in the AFC East. There's been a lot of talk this week about deep sleepers in the draft and players who have panned out in the later rounds, like Marcus Colson being a seventh-round pick, or obviously ESPN has focused a lot on Tom Brady and him being a sixth-round pick. Is there any players that really stick out to you in the day two or day three range that you think could be really productive NFL players, someone that you really one, like? Yeah. One guy who I really like is David Mims from Virginia Union. He's a 6'8", 330-pound kid, hasn't had much coaching at Virginia Union, but he's a naturally athletic kid. He can bend. He's powerful, long arms, 29 reps on the bench, a 36-plus-inch arms. Plus, he ran in the 5'3 range, physical at the point of attack, Velcro player with heavy hands. I think if you get this kid in the right scheme, give him some time to develop, he could end up fighting for a starting job as a right tackle at the next level. One guy I'm a little surprised with how this process has played out is DeMarco Murray. I I've seen most of his games in college. Uh, he's the all-time leading touchdown running back in really any position at Oklahoma. And uh, I'm just wondering what you think of DeMarco Murray and why his stock, uh, you know, going into last year, I think he was a guy who was right on the fringe of the first to second round, and he's really dropped off to being about the fifth or sixth, even seventh running back uh, rated on most boards. Well, the big thing with DeMarco Murray is, He's more of a linear athlete, a straight line guy. There's not a ton of wiggle to his game. He runs upright. He exposes his body. And when you add those up, that's not a that's not real conducive to running between the tackles at the next level. I think you need to play him in space, work him in the draw and screen game. But he's more of a sub-package running back. And when you get in a sub-package running back, you feel more content drafting him in the second, third, fourth round range as opposed to the first. 
I asked you about a couple specific teams and if quarterback was the way you would go, and you were pretty pretty definite in your response, no. And you don't have any quarterbacks rated that high on your board. As far as quarterbacks this year, who are your top one and two quarterbacks, and, and where do you think they should fall in the draft? Uh, Christian Ponder is my top overall quarterback. I think he goes somewhere in the second round range, which is about where I think his skill set would lead you to believe. Reminds me a little Trent Green, Matt Hasselback, that type of savvy veteran leader. Blaine Gabbert's my number two quarterback, and again, he's a little more physically gifted than Ponder. Not quite as savvy or experienced from the shoulders up. And if I was picking on draft day, I wouldn't take Gabbert until the second round as well. I think because it's such a starved quarterback league, we're seeing these guys get pushed up way above where they actually should be taken. And because of it, we'll see teams reach out quarterbacks throughout the first day of the draft. Another thing people like to talk about when they talk about the draft is bust. What player or two that is rated pretty highly and will go in the first 10 to 15 picks do you think has the biggest risk of being a bust? Well, if you look at the quarterbacks, Cam Newton, I think, has a lot of bust potential. Nate Solder from Colorado has a lot of bust potential. Alan Bailey, second, third round range from Miami, I think he has a lot of bust potential. But when you take guys who have that are better physical athletes than football players, obviously the bust potential is going to factor into it. Awesome, awesome. All right, we're talking with Wes Bunting from the National Football Post. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Wes Bunting, B-U-N-T-I-N-G. He has just released his top 100 prospects for the NFL Draft on Thursday. It's nationalfootballpost.com. Last question for you. You posted a column today about some potential top 10 scenarios, and uh, a lot of them have uh, the Panthers picking Cam Newton at number one, uh, the Bills selecting Marcel Darius at number three, or Blaine Gabbert. Um, you also have some interesting... 9-10 is uh, two of the bigger markets in the league, the Cowboys and the Redskins. And uh, two interesting picks for those teams. Where do you think the Redskins and the Cowboys ultimately end up uh, selecting? Well, I think with the Cowboys, they need to solidify that offensive line. Left tackle, Tyron Smith, I think would be a great fit there. And with the Washington Redskins, need a quarterback, they need a playmaker on offense. And they need to improve both sides along. So that's a ton of me. So I think the Redskins are in a spot, potentially could trade back. The St. Louis Rams of 14 make a lot of sense. Or if they need a playmaker, excuse me. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Julio uh, Jones makes a lot of sense as well. You really like Tyrone Smith, don't you? You've mentioned him quite a few times. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think he's uh, a potential blue chip left tackle in the NFL. I believe I have him as the fourth or fifth rated player on my board right now. I think he's a 20-year-old kid with elite athletic ability, and you just give this kid some time to develop. I think he can be a DeBrickishall type Ferguson tackle in the NFL. All right, Wes Bunting, thank you very much for giving us a, little, a few minutes here. I know you're very busy with the NFL draft. Enjoy it, and uh, thank you very much. You can find him at Wes Bunting on Twitter, nationalfootballpost.com. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, we are back. Great interview there with Wes Bunting. I want to thank him again. He is at Wes Bunting on Twitter, and you can read his work at the National Football Post, formerly where Mike Lombardi used to uh, work before he 
ended up at the NFL Network. Really a really cool site, so make sure you check it out. One thing we don't have a lot of time for today, but I wanted to make sure I got to it, is just a small book club update. Uh, again, the book this month is From Bags to Riches by Jeff Duncan. It's a look at the city of New Orleans and the New Orleans Saints and how they came together uh, to rise from just an absolutely disgusting situation in Katrina to Super Bowl champions in 2010. Next week, Jeff Duncan will join us to kind of look back at the book, kind of close it up, and we will uh, announce a new book next week. But I just wanted to make sure that we made a point to get it in today. If you have any questions for Jeff next week, make sure you send them off. Uh, we will have another book to give away next week um, with Jeff being on the show. We already gave one book away to uh, our guest last week, Jim Browley, and uh, he's been reading it and said that he will have some questions for us. But if you've been reading it and if you have any questions for Jeff, make sure you get him in for us next Tuesday. Don? Nope, sounds good. Okay, so we will be right back with Pete Williams. Tell you a story about the house went blue. I come home one Friday, had to tell a damn lady I done lost my job. All right, our next guest has reported on sports and sports business for more than 15 years. He is the author of a very cool book called The Draft, uh, where he was inside the NFL's search for talent for over a year. He also covers sports memorabilia and has written books on the subject. And uh, he also is available for speaking engagements, and his name is Pete Williams. How are you doing today, Pete? Doing just fine. Oh, we're very excited to have you on. You know, we're doing a little bit of a draft spectacular here at the Sportscasters today, and uh, we talked a little bit about the specifics of the players and stuff in the draft, and we thought it'd be great to have you on to talk about uh, the draft as a process and um, what the teams go through um, to prepare for the draft. Uh, I know that ESPN is actually doing a similar thing tonight uh, with Bill Parcells, and uh, Bill Parcells is going to kind of talk about his experiences in the draft room. So we're really excited about this spot. And uh, I guess the best place to start is just tell us a little bit about how the idea for the project, the draft, came up. Um, you know, what drew you to the subject, why you wanted to write the book, and how you got involved and got the access that you did to write it. Well, I guess for me, I had always watched the draft and was just fascinated by this notion that guys that were tremendous college players on draft day were, were not highly regarded at all, and then some guy you'd never heard of ended up sneaking into the second and sometimes even the first round, and that how talent was evaluated seemed completely contrary to what most of us would think. Well, we watch a lot of college football. We know who's good, and well... I realized there was a lot more to it than that, but I wanted to delve into that and see how teams evaluate college players, uh, how they do so in terms of visiting college campuses and all the investigative process, uh, the whole character issue we know. Uh, I wanted to see it from the agent standpoint. To me, that just seemed like the Wild West. I thought, you know, these guys are free to sign with an agent uh, literally within minutes after walking off the field after their bowl game, and you're telling me, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, there's never been any contact. <laughs> up until that point. Well, yeah, how is that policed, if at all? I wanted to see that. I wanted to see how the players, you know, uh, wove their way through this. And, and also, I was kind of fascinated by the whole combine preparation industry, which really has sprung up in the last 
15, 12, 15 years, I've written some books with uh, some fitness books to a guy named Mark Verstegen, who runs uh, the Athletes Performance Center out in Phoenix. He has a couple other centers now, but his uh, his group probably is the most prominent uh, pre-combine training operation. So I wanted to delve into that so that to see how really it's become a year-long process. Uh, as soon as the draft's over, as in a couple weeks, they will uh, start getting to work in earnest. Uh, NFL teams will in the 2012 process. So what I wanted to do is to show a year with in uh, the NFL draft process through the eyes of players, uh, the NFL teams, college programs, uh, agents, and, and even to a lesser degree, the TV networks. As you said, as soon as the bowl games are over, these guys kind of find their way, get an agent, and most of them leave school um, to start preparing for the draft. Uh, the first big part of the draft process, it seems like, is the combine. Some players will participate. Some players will participate a little. Some people will wait for pro days. Uh, what did you find out about um, what goes into the decision of who works out, who works out, how much, who waits till pro day, and things like that? Well, the whole process starts on pretty much January 4th or, or whenever your bowl game is over, you report to one of these combine training centers and, and you start getting ready for whatever that is. And, and sometimes uh, the decisions vary. I mean, I can remember in 2006, um, DeBrickishaw Ferguson, for instance, um, was considered one of the top five players. Indeed, I think he was drafted fifth four. or sixth by the I think Jets. Four, and, yeah. and, and he's the type of guy who would never play at the Senior Bowl. But he said, you know what, I'm going to go play at the Senior Bowl. So he did, and he went through the whole battery of interviews and tests and and everything else, and decided I'm not going to do the I'm not going to do the combine. I I got this over with. So he did go to the combine and did all the uh, all the mandatory stuff. But he said, you know what, they they saw me play and at the Senior Bowl, and then he went. Um, I think he did work out again at his pro day. You know, other guys for whatever reason, want to put all their chips on the table for their pro day. Uh, down here in Florida, where I live, uh, the, these guys, I don't know if it's a tradition or an old wives' tale or whatever, but they're convinced that their tracks at Gainesville or Tallahassee or here in Tampa, University of South Florida, are somehow faster than the uh, indoor track at uh, the RCA Dome. So right. you get it all, and then the agents are influencing it, and it, it all drives the NFL t- uh, officials nuts. But one thing that's really helped the Combine is when they started televising. It. And so that's when players realized, you know what, it, it really is a good thing for me to, to get out there and be on television and, and get my name kind of the hype machine rolling around it. So I don't think you see as much of that as you used to, guys, kind of uh, bowing out of the combine. Do you think that scouts take the numbers at a pro day less seriously than they take at the combine? Um, you know what I mean? Like, is are some of the numbers taken almost with a grain of salt that are done on the in the controlled system of a college campus? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, the, the scouts are out there with their stopwatches at the, uh, at, at the campus the same way they are um, in the RCA Dome. So um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's so funny. I, I can remember going through this process in 05, which uh, the, the fall of 04 and then the spring of 05 for the 05 draft, and you, you see some of the same scouts because I tended to focus my book on the Southeast, and I'd see some of the same guys at, at Pro Days, at the Combine, at the Senior Bowl, and I, I said, geez, at, at this point, there's a really matter and they say no it's just really confirmation at this point but they go to the pro days because inevitably there are going to be some guys who who haven't worked out until that point one thing that fascinates me about the process is the wonderlick and i remember uh vince young was kind of criticized for only getting a 16 and it came out this summer that roddy white may have gotten a four (laughs) which seems just 
impossible to me. But wh- what do you know about the wonderlick? Uh, it's something. It's a word that I think everyone knows more than they know exactly what it is. They know it's a test of some kind. But what can you tell us about the wonderlick? And do you think it's possible Roddy White actually scored a four? Boy, it, it's it's a test of um, logic and reasoning. And it's not it's not that the questions are so hard. It's just a, it's the speed round. I mean, you have to do however many there are fifty, I believe, or forty eight in in twelve minutes or something like that. And so, uh, you try answering fifty questions on anything in in that uh, speed of time. And so, but really, uh, the the only thing you have to know is. If it's a tough question, skip it and go to the next one. And so if you, do, if you just do that strategy, you can get through all 50 questions and, and probably get you know 20 or 25 just that way. Um, but I think a lot of these guys literally have no coaching on that aspect, which is surprising because these pre-combine centers uh, focus on everything else. I, I think these days I'd be surprised if a guy goes into the Wonderlick with that little preparation. But, you know, Roddy White, um, he was a guy I focused on a lot in my book because because right. uh, the, the one NFL team I dealt with that year was the Atlanta Falcons, who were run at the time by um, Rich McKay, who's, who's, who's still there as their president, but he was also their GM at the time, and, and Tim Ruskell, who was there for much of the process before uh, leaving for the Seahawks. But um, they really placed a premium on, on the whole character issue. And the, the, the wonder lick is, is one aspect of it that I think a lot of teams can kind of take it or leave it. Um, they, they don't really put a whole lot of credence into it. Is the interview process that goes on at the Combine, I know the teams get a chance to interview uh, a bunch of players at the Combine, then they can also invite them uh, back to their facilities for interviews. How important is a player's interview? Um, Can that sometimes be as important as uh, the 40 time? Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's what teams will tell you because the the scouts spend their whole fall, you know, going to college campuses and and you know talking to everybody under the sun and and finding out everything they can about a person, but they're they're not allowed to speak to the players um, uh, during the fall, other than to say hi, how are you, and you know if they pass them in the hallway or something like that. But uh, so yes, the, the much like any job interview, um, a player that interviews well is is uh, is only going to help his cause and guys who come across as uh, unprepared or arrogant or whatever, uh, that, that doesn't help their cause. But, but really, the, uh, the, interview, uh, the interviews that take place at the Senior Bowl, at the Combine, at, um, uh, sometimes when, the, when these players are brought in for individual uh, uh, meetings with teams, um, what, what they're looking for can be any number of things. The interviews can focus on, on uh, schemes and, hey, you played this scheme at your uh, school, we'll draw it up in, under our scheme. And you know, the player will go up on, on a whiteboard and then do just that. And so sometimes they're testing that kind of football knowledge. Sometimes they want to talk to a guy about um, uh, you know, some, some transgressions he's had in his past, some character-related things. Sometimes, uh, sometimes guys are just fascinating. Uh, you know, Myron Roll becoming a Rhodes Scholar, you know, they wanted to talk to him about that kind of thing. And guys who've gone through all manner of adversity. And, and so it, it can really be a, a wide-ranging interview. Some are laid back, some are pretty darn intense. But uh, bottom line is, yeah, absolutely, it's a big part of the process. One thing that I find very interesting about this year's draft is how many players are actually going to show up in New York and and be in that green room. I know we can all remember Aaron Rodgers and the nightmare he had waiting in there forever. It seems like this year might be the first year that someone is actually going to go there and possibly not even be drafted in the first round. I mean, if 25 guys are going to go and only 30 people are going to be picked, there's definitely a chance that the 25th best player in the room won't go uh, if you were a fringe prospect, would you take that risk, or would you 
Uh, I know most of some of the guys that you filed in your book. One of them stayed home and had a party. One of them stayed home with just family. What would you do on uh, draft day? I, I'd probably. I don't know if there's a really a, a cut and dry rule for that. Boy, when you get up to twenty five, uh, traditionally it's been six or yeah. something like that. And when when you're talking six. Yeah, the, uh, the NFL does a pretty good job of, of selecting those six guys, knowing that, well, somebody like that's not going to fall to the third round or something. When you're talking about tw- 25 guys, yeah, there's a good shot one of those guys could fall to the third round. I mean, get good luck. And NFL people will tell you this, too. They'll, they'll say, look, most of us can go, if we were to do a mock draft, and we can nail the top 12 people. We won't nail them in order, but we can nail. We can tell you what 12 guys they're going to be. But, you know, after that, you know, between 13 and, and 60 or 70 even, yeah, there's no guarantee, really. And so that's why, yeah, if, if I was a guy – uh, considered only among the top 25, I, I might be a little nervous. If, if again, the, the I don't know if the networks are going to do what they always do. I'm sure they will, which is to, to focus on the poor guys still left in the back room. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I might be a little nervous. Yeah, I just I couldn't believe that number when I seen it. It just it struck me as so crazy. But um, a, a couple of the players that you filed in the book were were later later draft picks. Um, do you still stay in touch with any of those players, and and how did their careers kind of turn out? Yeah, the, ironically, the, the two players I focused on were um, uh, Chris Canty and Fred Gibson, who amazingly were picked with back-to-back picks at the end of the fourth round. I mean, I, could, I'm, I should choose uh, lottery numbers or something <laughs> like that. I mean, the odds of that. And what made it more interesting is that I, at any given point, I mean, Chris Canty was regarded, who's now um, uh, a defensive tackle with the Giants, who was drafted in the fourth round, but the Dallas Cowboys got kind of a bargain uh, on him, and, and so he's had a, a pretty nice career. Career, although he's been hampered by injuries as of late, um, but but he was a guy who was considered a first-round pick going into his uh, senior year, but had uh, blew out a knee, uh, recovered from that, only to get into a, a bar fight and had a detached retina, um, recovered from that, but that right. certainly raised some character issues. He's had a nice career. Uh, Fred Gibson was a guy who was a wide receiver from Georgia who uh, really was a, a ter- terrific athlete. He played on the basketball team for, uh, for the Bulldogs as well, but uh, he didn't understand that you know, what you did in college isn't enough. Uh, he was told every step of the way, look, you got to put on 10, 15 pounds. you you got to do this, that, and the other. And he kind of didn't take his combine prep that seriously. And so he was drafted in the fourth round by the Steelers and in 05. And what was the, um, after, I think, Maurice Claret, the, the highest drafted player cut out of training camp. In fact, uh, of the Steelers' top seven picks, he was the only one that didn't end up getting a Super Bowl ring that, that fall. Even their seventh, sixth, and fifth round picks made the team, at least as practice squad players, and, and ended up contributing. So, uh, But what that shows, and I think confirms, and was sort of the point of my book anyway, was that uh, what a crapshoot it is, that you could take two guys picked at the end of the fourth round back-to-back, one guy has nothing of an NFL career whatsoever, and the other guy has made $30 million in a set for life. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. What position did you find that seemed to be the biggest crapshoot? I, I know we tend to focus on quarterback just because... Uh, quarterbacks are the faces of franchises. Do you think that is the hardest um, position to hit on, or do you think there's another position that is maybe more difficult, maybe like defensive tackle or something like that? 
it seems to go in cycles. I think if you were to, it seems like everyone struggles with the safety position of all things. You know, and they, you don't see too many safeties picked in the first round, and you always have guys who are like, "Well, is this guy going to end up being a linebacker? Is this guy sort of a tweener who might play some corner?" To, to try and find a pure safety, I, I don't think NFL teams lose sleep over it, but it, it does seem like something they. Uh, it, in other words, we seem to have a preponderance of quality offensive linemen and stud defensive tackles, but uh, everyone always seems to struggle with the uh, the safety position. So that would be one, and, and certainly the most disposable, as we know, is running back. Uh, no one wants to spend a first-round pick on, on running backs uh, because these guys have uh, have become so disposable. Now, the flip side to that is uh, usually a running back, more than any other position, can step right in and contribute right away. So there, there is that going for him. <laughs> Unless you're a Bills fan, and then you've got uh, three running backs drafted in the past. First round since last time they made the <laughs> playoffs. Made the playoffs. Well, yeah, the, Bill, the Bills drafting of uh, recent years has not been that yeah, great. Yeah, and a lousy safety. <laughs> yeah, the, the, and the Bills also missed on a fourth overall pick with Mike Williams. The, the Bills have an important draft this year. But uh, a question I had, I was just thinking about while you were talking there is um, this process is so intense. There's so much to it. There's so much scouting, the combine, the pro days, all of that. And yet there's still busts in the first round, and there's still guys who last into the sixth and seventh round. Tom Brady comes to mind. Marquise Colston comes to mind, and then all of the players who don't even get drafted. With how intense this process is, how does that happen? Well, I think there's a yeah, there there are a couple things, and and one thing I'd never thought of before I wrote this book is is that something that people have really stressed here. Look, look, continuity matters. I think more so than any other sport. The NFL draft, you're drafting for scheme fit. And, you know, uh, you can draft a center fielder in baseball, and he can play center field for all 30 big league teams, whereas, you know, a defensive tackle might be great in one team system, but he wouldn't fit at all. And the reason that matters is because you think of the turnover in the NFL. Well, every couple of years, uh, a coach and or general manager gets fired. So what happens? A new scheme comes in, and you might have some players who are perfectly decent players, but all of a sudden they don't fit anymore. And so they get cut. Maybe they latch on somewhere else. More likely, they fall between the cracks, and three years later, you say, boy, that guy was a bust. Meanwhile, some guy who was a six-round pick, let's say he latches on with a team with a lot of continuity, like, say, New England or Green Bay or Pittsburgh, and, and he's able to be uh, brought into the fold slowly, maybe a little off the practice squad. Maybe he, uh, due to an injury, he cracks the lineup, and he makes it, and then five years later, you think, wow, that guy was a six-round pick, and now look at him. He's a perennial all-pro. You look at the Steelers and the, and the Packers this year, and it was remarkable how many of their players were homegrown on both sides of the ball. Well, look at the continuity they they've had. Yes, Mike Tomlin's only been there three years, but, you know, they've had a lot of continuity in the front office, and of course, uh, it's not like Tomlin really reinvented the wheel, uh, taking over for uh, Bill Cowherton, not taking away anything Mike Tomlin's accomplished, of course. Same thing with uh, in Green Bay, with, um, you know, Ted Thompson's been there for a long time as well. So, when you have that kind of continuity, uh, New England as well, obviously, with, with Bill Belichick, Andy Reid in Philadelphia, it's not surprising when you look at these, um, these teams, and I wrote about this, actually, for for, um, the Sporting News NFL draft issue this year. Uh, it's kind of a chicken or the egg kind of argument. Well, do these teams draft well because they're smart guys, or do they look smart because they're there a long time and are able to you know, uh, keep this process going? So I think that, more than anything, is, is what makes the draft so interesting because if you have a team that keeps turning the – 
the, turning their, their coaching staff and their front office over and coming in with new philosophies and new schemes, it, you almost have to clean house when, when you take over. And because of that, a lot of guys look like pretty decent players under one regime you know, are not good fits with another. Yeah, I, you know, just as you're saying that, I, I think about maybe how lucky Marcus Colston was to come into a situation where Drew Brees was his quarterback, you know, where maybe if he would have ended up in, Wa- I think about Washington, who just a couple of years ago drafted two wide receivers and a tight end in the second round, and, and none of them have ended up working out. Devin Thomas, Malcolm Kelly, and what was the tight end's name? Fred something. I, I can't think of it, but none of them have ended up working out, and maybe that's part of uh, you know just Jason Campbell being their quarterback and going through offensive coordinators and, and not being lucky enough to be with like a Drew Brees, so to speak. One example along those lines we use, because I'm based here in Tampa, and, and, and Rich McKay and Tim Ruskell and Herm Edwards talk about this a lot. When they drafted Rondé Barber back in 1997 with a third-round pick, Rondé got to camp and just looked lost. He looked terrible, and they were all looking at each other like, did you like this guy? I didn't like this guy. <laughs> Whose idea was it to draft this guy? And what they found was that he was the perfect fit for the cover two. Uh, he was he was undersized, you know, like so many cover two uh, people under Tony Dungy's regime, but he was a perfect fit for that. And I think it's no coincidence that over Rondé's 15-year career, you've never heard him even think about going to play somewhere else. And so, because if he went somewhere else, he probably, you know, might not have that scheme fit that's been a, such a key part of his career. And now he's probably going to Canton. So it just goes to show you that had uh, Rondé Barber been picked by uh, another team, he might not have. He, he might only be known as uh, uh, Tiki Barber's brother who made, never made it in the NFL. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that you say that too because I can think, and we could probably go back and forth with examples all day, but uh, Jason David was a player who won a Super Bowl with the Colts and was great in their kind of man-on-man scheme. And then he signed a huge free agent deal with the Saints and was just an absolute bust and just could not play uh, the the scheme that the Saints defense wanted to play. So, yeah, that's a great point that, um, you know, and maybe that's why so I wonder, this is a question for you, uh, is the reason that so many undrafted free agents work out is because them and their the player and their agent can kind of cherry pick a, a, a good spot for the specific player? Oh, absolutely, and that is the first thing agents tell their guys when they don't get drafted. You know, because you know, on one hand, well, sorry, you're not going to get a bonus of any sort. But you know, the the sixth and seventh round money isn't so great that I, I think you'd be better off not getting drafted. And the agents always have that in mind because you know they think, okay, we're, who are we going to call first? And and the teams know too. I mean, they have guys that they know that they want to get as as free agents. They know that they're not going to have to uh, spend a draft pick on them. But they know, hey, the, you know, that guy's a pretty good scheme fit for us. Uh, he's not a great player, but you know, in the right situation, we have some injuries or whatnot, it'd be nice to have him on our uh, practice squad. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's no coincidence at all. Now, what happens this year with the undrafted free agents with, since there won't be a CBA in place before the draft? Yeah, barring, barring some more legal imagination. Right, right. We had some optimism yesterday. But, yeah, what, what does happen to those guys? That's that's a very good question. My guess is, and, and the only thing I can think of, having covered the baseball strike uh, back in um, – uh, 1994, 1995, we had a whole off season there with nobody signed. And, you know, we had a, a spring training with uh, replacement players. And then they finally came to an agreement. And, you know, agents had to work uh, around the clock for about four days just to get all their players signed. And my guess is that's exactly what's going to happen here. Um, uh, football needs a little more time to, to get settled into to camps. And you're, you're not just going to throw guys uh, into games the way they did in baseball that year. I mean, let's face it. 
obviously the, the risk of injury in baseball is not what it is in football, but right. uh, there's no doubt going to be a frenzy for uh, for those guys, along with the many other free agents, uh, veterans in, in football, and how that's resolved. And along the same lines, do you think the draft will look at all different this year because of the, I mean, there weren't many trades made for players anyway. Usually it's picks for picks anyway. So do you think it'll feel much different? Well, the feeling the feeling was well, you know, we we miss free agency, and a lot of teams say, well, you know, had we known right, if we we're right. going to lose this guy or sign this guy, and I, I still think they have a pretty good idea. They certainly have a good idea of who they were going to lose, um, but they they may, uh, you know, they now they're going to say, well, we probably would have signed that guy if we had a shot. Who knows if we will now? So there might be a little bit of that, but I don't think it's going to have as much impact on on who teams select as as maybe it was first thought. Yeah, um, the CBA thing—it's—it's definitely—it's definitely crazy. I, I mean, I hope they work it out, you know, because I don't know what we would do as a nation without <laughs> without football in the fall. But a um, couple more, a uh, couple more draft-related questions, and uh, let's just talk about the draft day itself. Um, a lot's made of the kind of war rooms. You had a chance to be in one. What is it like to be in a war room on a draft day? Well, it's interesting. It's it's not as exciting as you would think. Um, the you know it's, it's pretty quiet. Uh, teams. What's fascinating to look at is a team's board. I mean, uh, I can only speak to what the Falcons did, which I think is pretty similar to what most teams do. Just imagine you know being in a a large conference room, and two walls of it are set up as the from from floor to ceiling with white magnetic board. And each each player has um, his name and information on a credit card si- a, um, uh, a business card sized magnet, and there are two sets of that. And uh, each time one of these guys is picked, um, he's moved to the other wall, and they have a team by team and a round by round, so you can look at it that way. And the magnets are all color coded and based on you know who well, what the how the team grades the guy and everything else. But what's interesting is that you know you can look at a team's board, their their universe of players. And they will put like a certain color uh, dot on these guys. This is our universe of say 110 guys that we're going to pick. You may say 110 guys. That's it. Well, that's across all positions, and that represents all rounds. So they eliminate guys based on scheme fit or, or character, or you know, we have enough wide receivers. We don't really need to draft one. That sort of thing. So that's what to me is really fascinating. The uh, the, the decisions have pretty much been made, and, and if you're a if you're a student of, of the game, you could go in and look at a guy's board, and it's pretty much an elimination process at that point. Uh, where things get interesting is, you know, if if you get to the, uh, 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 I don't know, thir- um, third round, or um, and, and one of your guys from the first round is still there, or a guy you had rated high, you're like, wow, we can grab him here. Then that gets to be some uh, spirited debate. But it's also kind of strange sometimes the people that get into the draft room. You know, the owner will bring in all sorts of family members, hangers-on, and other people, uh, hopefully for small periods of time. But uh, for the most part, it, it's a pretty, uh, dare I say, sedate operation. Hmm. Will, will teams have guys on their boards they have no chance of getting? Like Green Bay is not going to go in there with uh, Marcel Darius and Von Miller on their board, right? Uh, they they will rate them highly, absolutely. Um, and but will they put you know the proverbial red dot on them? I, I think they would. Yeah, absolutely. Really? Okay. But um, but yeah, I clearly that's going to be a, a different rating system of sorts. Um, yeah. But but yeah, if if there's a guy that they like, um, you know, I can remember this with um, 
with the Falcons in uh, 2005. Um, Heath Miller looked like a guy that could fall to the Falcons, and I, I and um, uh, and they liked Heath Miller. You know, who, who didn't like Heath Miller coming out of college? He was a great character guy, a, a Virginia great, guy uh, too, right? great tight end, everything. And uh, but but at the time, Algie Crumpler was an All Pro tight end for the Falcons. So you're thinking, well, it's, it's probably not a good fit for them. But they had Heath Miller, you know, I believe on their board. They certainly had him highly rated. Interesting, and they ended up uh, picking Roddy White that year. What was the um, did was that an automatic pick? Did they pretty much rush the card in, or was there a couple guys that they they thought about when they were eventually on the clock? And did they take? They any- had a yeah, they had a number of guys in the mix, including I believe Logan Mankins, who went a few picks later to the uh, New England Patriots and has had a nice career. Um, uh, a couple other linemen were there, and what's interesting, you know, Rich McKay uh, has a has a horrible history of, of both drafting and signing wide receivers. Uh, you know, whether yep. you're talking about uh, Alvin Harper or Michael any Jenkins. number of uh, busts in Tampa, or, you know, even when he traded for Keyshawn Johnson, you know, that that ended poorly. So, uh, you know, when Roddy White was drafted, you know, people were kind of scratching their heads, and and he was not by any means a guy who. Uh, he he was he's been a late bloomer in Atlanta. It was not really till his third and fourth seasons that he's really become the uh, the all pro wide receiver. The sportscasters here. We're talking to Pete Williams. You can find him at www.petewilliams.net. Uh, one question about sports memorabilia before we let you go: How is the economy uh, being as ported as it? It's been the last few years, and anytime you talk about spending money, you have to talk about the economy. Uh, how has that hurt the uh, sports memorabilia market? Oh, it's been huge. No, no question about it. I think when you combine the economy with the fact that a lot of people are realizing that uh, pretty much anything that's been made since 1975 really is worthless because it's been overproduced, it's been hoarded, it's been collected, it's been marketed as blue chip can't miss investments. You combine that uh, with, you know, with an inherently flooded market and a horrible economy, and it's tough to unload anything. I mean, I just got an auction catalog for uh, Robert Edward Auctions. The thing's two inches thick. It's beautiful. I mean, you could spend hours just going through it. And I was really amazed at some of the um, the estimates that they have. You never know ultimately what a product's going to go for in an auction, but some of the estimates are like, really? For a 1969 top set of baseball cards might only go for 500 bucks? That's incredible. For you know, a few years ago, you would have thought that would bring uh, 2,500. I, I know everyone's obsessed about condition now with cards now more than ever, and, and that's a big factor. But still, it, it's really remarkable. And, but it's what I always tell people. Look, don't go investing in sports memorabilia. It's never been worth anything. It's not liquid. It, it's not something you can compare to stocks or even real estate. Just buy something because you like it, and you'd be satisfied keeping it forever. What about uh, steroids? How has that affected, I mean, particularly in baseball memorabilia? Like something like Mark McGuire's uh, record home run ball went for some crazy amount. What would they get for that now? I mean, I know the record's been broken too, but have steroids in particular had any effect? Well, a couple things. You know, of course, that ball's from 1998 when the the economy was gonzo, when, when baseball was right. crazy. Uh, you know, nothing, you know, even if Mark McGuire uh, uh, was as revered as Cal Ripken for being squeaky clean, I don't think a ball like that would go for more than a fraction just because we live in a different time now. But no question, the uh, the Hall of Fame stamp of approval is means everything. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Pretty much the only thing I collected growing up was Dale Murphy memorabilia, a guy, Atlanta Braves outfielder, who was 
at the time in the early mid eighties regarded as the best player in the game. And he didn't have that second win to his career. Some people might say uh, that he had as good a career as Jim Rice or Andre Dawson or Tony Perez or some of the most recent enshrinees. But the bottom line is he didn't come close to the Hall of Fame. Those guys squeaked in after a number of years. So their memorabilia is always going to be worth a lot more. And, and even uh, though you know, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Roger Clemens, Manny Ramirez have hands down numbers worthy of Cooperstown, they're not going to get in. And because of that, that's always going to have an impact on their memorabilia. You know, I saw something interesting on TV last night that kind of surprised me. I was watching uh, the Pawn Star show, which can be silly at times. But I don't know if you've seen this. A girl brought in a San Francisco 49ers Super Bowl ring, and she got it because she was a cheerleader, and it was actually a, a women's size ring, and uh, it was made for, the, they gave the cheerleaders rings that year, it was the 1989 season, and they kind of viewed it as being basically worthless. Um, as far as Super Bowl rings and things like that, does it have to be Joe Montana's ring for it to be worth anything other than, you know, what the ring itself is worth? Or, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. The answer. The answer is no. I mean, obviously, the the bigger the star, the more it's going to be worth. But generally speaking, uh, it should still have some value. What usually happens, and you just alluded to it, is that uh, the players have more diamonds and bling in the jewelry, and then they make one with uh, lesser jewels for people in the front office, cheerleaders, friends of the owner. I mean, they can really produce uh, lots and lots of them. But but generally speaking, uh, you know, those rings are are valuable, and they pop up in the auction catalogs a lot. Because let's face it, if you're somebody who works in the front office, you're probably not making that much money you don't and if you're an accountant for the team you you may not be working for the team because you're passionate about sports it's just a good job and everything else and when you leave a few years later and somebody says hey you can get five grand for that ring you're going to put it up for auction i know i would <laughs> uh, well maybe i wouldn't because i'm a huge sports fan but you know you can see where some people would right um so so yeah the the, the rings uh, there are many variables along those lines now, I stood up in a wedding, and uh, <laughs> the guy whose wedding I stood up in, he gave me a mini helmet of Oklahoma signed by Adrian Peterson. Can I plan my retirement anytime <laughs> soon if I were to cash that in, or should I hang on to it for now? Well, a couple things going on there. I mean, like I said, anything made since 1975 has been made a lot of. You know, uh, presumably uh, Adrian Peterson will continue, and, and let's say he has a Hall of Fame career. But like anyone else, uh, uh, the modern athlete like him is signing an awful lot of mini helmets. So you're you're not going to have anything rare and unusual. So no, probably Damn. not. Damn. Uh, <laughs> I, I know I've always heard that Gandhi and uh, Jesus have very rare autographs and. I know Tiger Woods has kind of tried to limit his. Is there, is there any uh, autographs that are most desirable right now? You know, the whole thing about autographs, you know, as I always say, Mickey Mantle died in 1995, but he's been signing an awful lot of autographs since then. And if you've <laughs> read the terrific book Operation Bullpen, which chronicled the FBI's uh, crackdown to the autograph business, uh, you come away saying, I would never purchase an autograph uh, unless I you know, had it signed in front of me, and then no one's going to believe you when you go to sign it, no matter how much documentation, presumably. So, yeah, Moses and, and Jesus and Gandhi <laughs> and everyone else have, have somehow been managing to sign basically. It's remarkable. Now, uh, one more question about uh, memorabilia. Has uh, LeBron James's memorabilia taken a hit since he's kind of become like public enemy number one to everybody? He's the easiest guy to, to root against, maybe in the league. Is does that affect his memorabilia? 
Not particularly. And I think what happens in the NBA is because it, it tends to be more of, a, I think, a national sport at a star level than, than anything else. And, and what I mean by that is because you, in the NBA, you tend to only have so many stars. And, and I think this goes back to really the early 80s when we think about uh, the Sixers, the Lakers, and the Celtics, where everyone's sort of, you know, there are only 10 or 12 true stars on, on the team. And so I think, yeah, no doubt LeBron took a hit in, in Cleveland and, and will always uh, he's, he's always been a national figure uh, and, uh, and had collectability in that regard um, since he was a teenager, really. I mean, that we've, we've known him at a younger age than, yeah. than most athletes. So, so, no, I wouldn't think so. You know, like with anyone else, it's going to come down to titles won and clutch performances and, and everything else. All right, it's Pete Williams. Uh, a guy on his website is PeteWilliams.net. He has authored uh, the book The Draft, also Card Sharks, and uh, Donnie's favorite book, Sports Memorabilia for Dummies. <laughs> uh, have you, have you uh, buckled and joined Twitter yet, or where else can we find you? Where else are you working these days? What do you want to plug? Yeah, Twitter uh, at PeteWilliams7. Um, obviously, I write some uh, great fitness books with uh, Mark Verstegen out at Athletes Performance, the Core Performance Series. You can find that at Amazon.com. And, and I think at, at long last, I'm going to be doing a revised version of Card Sharks. People have asked me about it for years, and I said, oh, I don't know if you really do that, but given all the turmoil and upper deck over the years, I think I'm going to do a revised version of that, hopefully get that out uh, early next year. You should talk to that guy from the Home Shopping Network. I can't remember his name, but he was so enthusiastic about it. That, wasn't yeah. the, that guy was <laughs> that guy was great. All right, thank you, Pete. Thank you very much. We appreciate the time, and uh, we'll we'll definitely uh, get you up on Twitter, and uh, hopefully we can have you another time. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank Pete. you. He didn't seem to know what you're talking about. No, how's <laughs> that, that guy's name? Gem. All right, as part of this uh, mega draft spectacular podcast, I figured it'd be a cool idea just to take a look at the first round of the fantasy football drafts. I know Don and I are big fantasy football guys. We're definitely looking forward to the new fantasy football season coming up, and that's definitely something that we're going to cover quite a bit here at the Sportscasters. But I thought with all the mock drafts going on and all the uh, hype around the draft, it might be fun to do our very first mock draft of the first round. So Don and I are both going to give you a uh, 10-pick first round, and uh, Don's going to kick it off. All right, my first pick, uh, I think this year or last year, he proved it more than anything. He's the most consistent guy you can draft, and that's Adrian Peterson. Unless Chris Johnson goes off and has a year like he had the year previous, I think Peterson's going to be the safest pick you can make from here until he stops being productive. I also have Adrian Peterson at number one. I just think it's a matter of consistency. Whenever you pick number one, you need that pick to really pan out because you have such a gap in between your first pick and your second pick. So you got to make sure you, you pick a safe guy. And Peterson's shown that he's healthy, durable, and very dependable. So he's my number one as well. My number two is uh, I don't love the second, my second or third pick. Like, I wouldn't love to be in this spot. I'd probably trade down to around 4 or 5 if I could, but I would go with Chris Johnson. Uh, he didn't have the year he expected to last year, but his team was kind of a mess, and if that's a bad year from him, then that's pretty consistent too. My second overall pick is Maurice Jones-Drew. Uh, 
I thought about him or Chris Johnson in this spot. I took Maurice Jones-Drew just because he does catch the ball out of the backfield a little bit more than Chris Johnson does. Yeah, the only thing, uh, knowing what we don't know now, is his he is or coming off an ankle or whatever it is, injury, and that would worry me a little bit. But I was surprised. I looked him up to f- do some research on this, and he's only like 27 years old or 26 years old. Yeah, he's the same age as Reggie Bush. They came in the league at the same time. He's surprised, so. Yeah, he's surprisingly very young. Uh, my third pick is Arian Foster. Uh, good all around. He had touchdowns last year, catches the ball. He's got that home run ability. Uh, I like him a lot. Again, I don't know that he's as, he's nowhere near as safe as Peterson. I think this year there really is a big drop off after after number one. All right, my third pick is is Chris Johnson. I thought about him at two. I uh, lean towards Maurice Jones-Drew, but not a terribly big gap there. So Chris Johnson is my number three. My number four pick uh, is Jamal Charles. I know. Thomas Jones is there, but I love Jamal Charles, and I gotta assume that Jones is gonna get less carries as he gets older, and Charles will—he does more with little than anybody else in the league, and I just love his game. So, all right, my uh, number four pick is C.J. Spiller. No, I'm kidding. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, kid. Uh, Ray Rice is my number four pick. I like his offense, and I think that the Bolden and Flacco combination should be a little bit better this year. So I think that will make Ray Rice all the more valuable. So I'll pick Ray Rice at number four. Yeah, my number five pick is Jones Drew. And like I said, it mostly has to do with the uncertainty over his injury. And with nobody practicing or anything right now, it's impossible to know anything about him. So ask me again in a month or two, and I'll probably have a different answer. But I have Jones Drew at five. He's he's pretty safe, too. I mean, he is banged up a little bit, but... He doesn't have like an overwhelming injury history or anything. My number five is also a little bit on the safe side. Maybe not a pick I love, but it's a guy that nobody ever wants, but the guy who gets him always gets exactly what he would expect from that slot, and that's Frank Gore. Um, I, I always kind of shy away from picking him, and then he he just he produces, and he's been a really productive player for the 49ers. Uh, they beat the hell out of him last year. They did. And I think they good, will though. again this yeah, year. So let's see how he can hold up. But uh, I like I like Frank Gore. I like to take wide receivers early. My number six pick is Andre Johnson. He was hurt last year, but when he wasn't hurt, he was very productive. Uh, just shy of fifteen hundred yards, I think, and he's real as consistent a receiver as you can get if you could stand when he's on the field. Yeah, my number six is uh, someone you took just a little bit earlier, and that's Arian Foster. Just a little bit worried here because that was the first time we've seen him do it. Right. Uh, that's the only reason he slipped a little bit for me. Uh, I kind of want to see him do it again just because there's been a lot of backs in the in the last years who have kind of shown up for one season and then disappeared. But uh, I love the fact that Andre Johnson is on that team. Uh, anytime you have an elite receiver, I think it's just easier for the running back to be productive. So uh, I'm, I'm still a first-round guy for Arian Foster, but a little bit lower than you are high on him. Yeah, my, my next pick is the only other – Receiver I see is a totally safe thing, and that's Roddy White. Uh, what do you have, 125 catches? He's something? almost similar to Frank Gore in the sense that people don't give him the respect he deserves, but he always ends up producing at a really high level. Yeah, especially in any sort, any, any league that gives any points for receptions. He's extra valuable in that. Uh, my pick is here is Andre Johnson. Again, I like a wide receiver. 
Um, I think the top two or three wide receivers have a lot more value than the seventh or eighth or ninth running back. Right. Uh, so I have Andre Johnson in that spot. My number eight pick is LaShawn McCoy. Again, he's more valuable in a PPR league than a standard league, but he showed some breakout ability. That offense is pretty potent, and people thought his receiving numbers would fall way off with Vic, and they did for a little while, but at the end of the season, they seem to develop a little bit more of a chemistry, and he just has that breakout ability that I like. Uh, My next pick, still with the wide receivers, again, is Roddy White. Just very consistent, very steady, very easy to count on, shows up every week, very dependable, definitely worth a first-round pick. My number nine pick, and maybe it's because I owned him, uh, he probably should be a little bit higher, but it's Ray Rice. Uh, anyone that owns Ray Rice is going to hate Willis McGahee, so, but Willis should be less, far less of a factor, hopefully, for Ray Rice owners, and I have uh, him in the end of the first round. My number nine pick is Aaron Rodgers, just a stud. Um, I don't necessarily love picking quarterback in the first round, but if I had number nine, I would be very comfortable picking Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I have Aaron Rodgers at 10. I don't like to pick quarterbacks either, but if I'm picking at nine or 10 and he's there, uh, you you basically can make your – I mean, at 10, you can clearly make your second pick in a 10-team league, so you know if there's a good running back out there. Still, like if I was thinking when I put him at 10, if I had Aaron Rodgers at 10 and someone like a Mendenhall – or a Michael, Tur- or a Michael Turner as my number one running back, I'd be okay with that, having the, probably the best quarterback and a high-end number two running back. Uh, my number 10 is one that maybe it's unrealistic to think you could get him at 10, but if you could, it's a steal. It's someone you had ranked a little higher, and that's Jamal Charles. Um, he had a great season last year. He's, he, he's got a lot of talent. He had a good uh, second half of the season two years ago, I think the future's only going to get better and better for him as the years go on. And if you have a chance to draft him at 10, I thought about a bunch of players here. I thought about Drew Brees, thought about Calvin Johnson, thought a little bit about Miles Austin, but ultimately I felt like uh, it was time to get back in with running backs, and uh, that's why I picked Jamal, Char- Jamal Charles there. Interestingly, neither of us have Michael Vick or Peyton Manning in the top 10. But I think they're coming. I, I think that next group in the next group of ten has a few quarterbacks in it, and Breeze and maybe Manning, maybe Vic. Um, also, uh, where would this D'Angelo Williams end up is a big question with him. Right. Uh, he's a free agent. Uh, obviously, it's a strange situation to be this late in the year and not know where the free agents will be. But at some point, he's going to find a home, and that could raise or lower his value depending on where he ends up. Jonathan Stewart being the number one guy too could increase his value a lot except for that that team's a disaster he's going to have to do it the way frank gore does it against seven man fronts and the way adrian peterson is probably going to have to do it again this year right it will be interesting to see about some of the second round backs or second year backs too i joked about cj spiller but uh javid best is a guy who showed a lot of flash last year and uh he could be a guy that um in the second or third round that you might want to look at but fantasy football not that far off and we figured that since uh, we were talking so much about the NFL draft that we'd do a little fantasy football mock draft. I thought that was fun. We should do this maybe once a month as we get closer yeah, the, and closer. the one thing I was going to say about this is uh, it's interesting how different our lists are being this far away. It'd be interesting to be in a league that drafted really, really early. Yeah, that might be fun just to see 
what you ended up with and and one that you could even you know start making waiver moves almost you know right, right. away and and trades and kind of mess with your season, your team during the off season kind, kind of like yeah, an like NFL team. team does but i guess that's kind of what keeper leagues are for right 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 uh, a lot of keeper leagues will will operate that way okay we'll be right back <laughs> All right, our next guest is the main man over at cfbexaminer.com, the college football examiner. You can follow them on Twitter at cfbexaminer. He is Kevin McGuire from the Philadelphia area. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing really good. Uh, we're excited to have you on because you have the most unique and interesting mix of jobs I've ever heard of. You write about college football and you write about video games. That's kind of like every 14-year-old's wet dream, it seems like. Well, that's exactly what I've been telling people. You know, I've come across a couple of positions where I get to live out my fantasies when I was uh, growing up in the elementary school, middle school. So, I mean, it's, I, I have no complaints about it so far. Pretty awesome. Why don't we start with the college football end of things as we're getting ready for the draft and I wonder, I know you call it, you follow college football really closely, you follow the players really closely. If you were Carolina, if you had this first overall pick, which player would interest you the most? I'm kind of buying into the whole Cam Newton type, because I think if you're Carolina, you have a lot of positions to worry about. And it's, it's not very unlikely that a team in that kind of position is going to go with a quarterback that they hope they can mold to become kind of their franchise guy. And I think... A guy like Cam Newton has that potential to be that kind of player. And obviously, he's got things to work on in his mechanics and everything, but uh, everything I've seen from him over the past year and a half, really, uh, I'm sold on. I, I think he's got the talent. I think he's got the skill. And I think he's got the athleticism to really be that charismatic leader. And I believe he handles the pressure well. I believe he handles the media well. I think he'll. I think he would have an easy transition or an easier transition than some other players going into being that number one guy. So that's the guy I really think is going to end up being their pick. You know, it's interesting because they play in the NFC South, and obviously that division is loaded with quarterbacks, with Drew Brees and Matt Ryan and Josh Freeman. And, uh, you know, if I were them, I might look quarterback too, but you worry about the bus factor. What players that you have watched that will probably be drafted in the top 10 picks, do you think have the uh, most bust potential? Well, I don't think he's going to go in the top 10 pick, but the one guy I've been kind of down on for the past season has uh, been Washington's quarterback, Jake Locker. Yeah. I, I never really bought into the hype surrounding him, and I, I kind of warned people that going into the last season that he was not all the hype was, machine was gearing him up to be because he was being traveled around the country as the, the Heisman hopeful for Washington, and I just kind of scratched my head just thinking, you know, really? I, I don't see it, and I never did see it, and apparently some scouts see something in him, see, see some potential, and somebody's going to take him in the first round, I think. Uh, I don't know if he'll go outside the top ten, but if I'm looking at the guys that might go to the top ten, I don't really know who would be the most likely to be a bust, so I guess I'm just going to throw a locker. It's interesting. We've talked a little bit about Newton and we talked about Locker, so let's just let's just finish up the quarterbacks here. What do you think of Mallet? I know he ran really, really slow, slower than most of the offensive linemen at the draft. 
But there's something about him I kind of like. I don't know. He seems like he's got a real edge, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of tenacity to him. What do you think of uh, What do you think of Mallet? Well, I think he he does have an attitude, and that can be a positive thing and a negative thing. And I think so far, right now, it's been mostly a negative thing. Just the way he's presented himself through the media, and it's kind of raising some questions about his personality. And obviously, he's got some baggage coming with him. Uh, but as far as talent goes, I think he he has a really good arm. And I think a, a good situation where I'm, I'm not exactly sure what NFL team would be the best situation for him, but I think he would have the ability to find a good spot somewhere and really put up some good numbers and maybe help a team turn things around on the offense. The only problem is he is a statue back there. So, I mean, he's not going to handle the pressure. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he handles the pressure. He's not going to be getting away from a lot of defenders, especially in the NFL. But like I said, his arm is what's going to wow some people. And I think that's going to really be the biggest part of his game, obviously. Um, but like I said, he's got the character issues. And I don't really know how NFL teams are really going to judge him going into the draft. I don't know how that affects his draft stock. I don't think it, can't, I don't think it does very much to increase it. But I think he's got some talent there that's going to really make him an interesting prospect. We're in Buffalo, and I'm fired from a Bills fan. But this is... An absolutely humongous draft for the Bills. The last time they drafted this high, they took Mike Williams from Texas. It set the team back about five years. Let's assume that Cam Newton goes first and he's off the board. And you're the Bills. What do you do? Um, best defensive player available? Do you take well, the Missouri quarterback? Uh, I'll say this. I what actually, do you do? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, I was actually recording a podcast yesterday with somebody who happens to be a Bills fan. So I'm going to kind of share what he was telling me. Um, he was saying that if Marcel Darius from Alabama, defensive tackle, if he's there when the Buffalo Bills come up in the drafts, he doesn't think there's any way that he's going to fall behind them. And that would be a great pickup because I think Darius is going to be a real good player in the NFL. So if he happens to drop, I forget where the Bills are picking. Are they like three or something like that? They're three. Okay. Okay. Well, what other way? Either way. If Darius is there, I would fully expect the Bills to be picking him, and I think that's going to be a real good pickup for him. And that'll really continue the, uh, the defensive transition, I guess, the revamping of the defense in Buffalo. And I think that would be a good, solid player to add to your defensive line. How good is Patrick Peterson, and how close do you think he is to a sure thing? I think Patrick Peterson is probably going to be as close to a sure thing in this draft as there's going to be. I, I really think he is one of the top players, and what makes him so special is not only does he play solid defense, he's also a good special teams guy. He can return kicks, he can return punts, uh, so he's got that flexibility. He's got all kinds of character traits that you're really looking for in a solid player. Um, I, I really do think that he's the real deal. And I, as far as cornerbacks go, he's hands down the top guy at the position, and he has a whole lot of fun going into him being a top three pick. I don't think there's any way he goes past three. Um, I, I think he's a real, the real deal. I really do think that. Let's shift away from the draft a little bit and talk a little bit about college football. I'm a big college football fan like you are. I'm looking forward to the season. What is going on with Ohio State? It's just an absolute mess. Uh, some more information came down the line yesterday. Is this something that is going to cost Jim Trestle his job eventually, or do you see him sweating this out and just getting away with a five-game suspension, or 
What's going to happen to Ohio State? When all this stuff really started to come out uh, in around December, whenever that was, I was one of the first people to say that there's no way Tressel is going to serve a real long suspension. There's no way he's going to be pressured to resign or anything like that. But since then, so much has come out that has really swayed my opinion going the other way. I, I honestly think that Tressel is walking on real thin ice right now because if you look at the history of all the coaches and athletic directors who have been found to be lying to the NCAA in regards to their oversight or something like that, uh, I forget what the numbers are exactly, but I'm going to try and rehash them for you. I think it's been 177 cases since 1990 or something like that, and 171 of those coaches or athletic directors were forced to resign or they were terminated. So the odds are not very good for Trestle. Um, but as far as this season goes, I think he's going to be allowed to serve his five-game suspension. But it really is up in the air of whether or not he's going to be back around next season, I think. I, I think the pressure is really on right now, and I honestly don't know how he's going to survive this. I know this is a really simple question, but why did he lie? I don't understand, really. What, what, was, what was the point in lying? Everything he says sounds like he was kind of scared and he was trying to contact people that were in more direct relationship with these players that were doing things. And, you know, I'm not trying to excuse that. That's ridiculous because you're the head football coach and you have a responsibility to comply with your own university's compliance office. And he didn't do that. So I, I just think he was scared to death. And with the fact that, I guess the FBI was looking into things, uh, an attorney general was involved. Uh, I think he was honestly just scared to interfere with a legal process. And like I said, not that I'm excusing that. I mean, he still had a responsibility for his employer, but I, I just think he was scared. And I think that's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it just, it's one of those things, you know, it's almost like Watergate where the cover-up is worse than the actual crime. It's too bad that he, right. you know, it's too bad that he went that path because it just seems, it just seems odd to me. But uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Oklahoma is loaded coming back. It seems like they are kind of a consensus out there as uh, a preseason number one, even though ranking in the preseason I think is, is just about as silly as anything in college football. Uh, give me your top five going into the season. Who do you like? Which teams do you think come back strong? Uh, who's the leader in the SEC? It seems like the SEC champ is always a part of the national championship mix. Uh, what do you What do you think going into next season? Well, first of all, in Oklahoma, I do really like the seniors next year. I don't. I'm not going to have them as my top team to beat, but I think they'll be right in that championship team mix. But you're talking about the SEC. There's two schools that I have in mind right now, and they happen to be in the same division. So it's going to really come down to whenever those two teams play in the division play. It's Alabama and LSU. I think the winner of that Alabama-LSU game this season is going to go on to the SEC championship game. And if you win that game, your odds are very good to be in the BCS championship game, at least if recent history tells us anything, which I think it does. And I'm really high on Alabama right now. Um, I think they've got a lot of talent coming back. If they can figure out what they're going to do with the quarterback situation, I think that's really the only concern that they really have. Now, granted, that's an important position, but Nick Saban just has a way of coaching up his teams and getting them prepared on a weekly basis, and he he knows what he's doing. I'll give him that, and I think 
regardless of who it is behind center. I think Alabama's going to be very tough to beat this year. Um, the fact that they have a pretty decent out-of-conference schedule with a game up at Penn State, I, you know, it's very rare an SEC team goes into Big Ten country, so I think that's going to be a pretty early statement for them, and I think they'll probably pull it out and out. And I really think Alabama's going to be that team to beat. I think LSU has a pretty good chance of as long as they beat Alabama, I think they're going to take a little. They're going to take a few people by surprise, even though Les Miles has some issues in uh, leaking coaching or clock management. But I think those are two teams you really want to keep an eye on. And then the other, rounding up my top five, I'm kind of debating between Stanford and Oregon. I'm not really sure what it's going to be like this season. I don't think they're going to run through the Pac-12 as easily as they did the Pac-10 last year. Obviously, that whole conference is going through a transition right now, so things can be a lot different. But I think those are going to be two very talented teams. Stanford having Andrew Luck back this year is going to be a big plus. But I think they're going to miss Jim Harbaugh a little more than they're probably willing to admit yet. So it's going to be interesting to see how they go. And Oregon, Oregon's still going to be fast, and they're going to score a lot of points. So it's going to be fun to watch again. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about realignment and all that stuff that we've heard about the last couple of years is, is, going to, is going to play out this year. How do you think Nebraska is going to do in their new conference? And it moving away from the yeah, Big think, 12, yep. Yeah, I think Nebraska is actually going to be in a very good position this season. Um, you know, they're coming into the Big 10. They're going to be in the same division as um, Michigan, who I think will be better this season. Michigan State, who was a co-champion last year. They're going to be in the same division as Iowa, who's always a tough team, uh, especially on defense. So, I mean, they're, they're going to have some good opponents coming up in their conference schedule. And obviously they have the crossover matchups with, I believe, with uh, Ohio State and Penn State. So, I mean, they have a really good schedule in front of them. And if they can take care of business in their own division, I, I think they have an absolutely good chance to take a Big Ten title in their first season. I think they're going to enter as one of the division favorites this year. I think one of the things that makes college football frustrating for fans is obviously the lack of a playoff. And this topic has been beaten to death. But I'm just curious, since we've never talked, how do you feel about the whole situation? Are you a fan of the BCS? Do you wish there was a playoff? Do you wish they went back to the old system? What would be, what would in Kevin's mind, what would be the perfect way to decide the college football championship? Well, the, the perfect way to do it, I still think, would be a playoff system. Um, but I've kind of or I've kind of lived up to the fact that I'm probably never going to see that. I honestly do think that. I think we're going to be stuck with some kind of a bowl system, whether it's a, the old-fashioned bowl system or a BCS formula kind of system. I, I think that's not really going anywhere soon. Um, I, I would love to see a playoff. Though. I, I've been wanting a playoff since I was in middle school. Um, so I, I, I would love to see it. I, I understand that there's so many different ways that people think there is the perfect solution to it, and I, I don't think there is a perfect solution to it, and I think that's really what the problem is, because there is no clear-cut way of doing it, um, or at least there's not going to be a way that everybody's going to agree to. So that's really what's holding everything back. But if you're asking me, I would love to see a playoff system, but I've, I've lived up to the fact that it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Do you think that the Fiesta Bowl fiasco will speed up a change in any way, or do you think that the Fiesta Bowl just may get kind of bumped out of the mix and another bowl will just take its place? Or how do you think the Fiesta Bowl scandal will shape out? Yeah, I don't think the Fiesta Bowl is going to be kicked out of BCS. I think they're going to find a way to survive this little phase that they're going through right now. Um, obviously, it was an ugly situation with that game, 
and the, the management of that game. But I think they will work it out. They'll, they'll find a way to prove themselves worthy of staying in the mix as long as they make the right moves and as long as they're clear with everything that they're doing with the BCS people. Uh, I, I don't think the Fiesta Bowl is going anywhere. It's a, it's a great bowl game. It's got a lot of history, tradition. Um, it's it's one of the more fun games, I think. Um, it, obviously, last year's game was kind of a, a... It was kind of like a rare instance because it, it didn't have that great attendance that it usually does. And the Fiesta Bowl is, is a good atmosphere for a bowl game. And I, I really don't think that they're going to be going anywhere. So I think they'll, they'll find a way to survive this. And I don't really think it's going to change anything really much in going into the future there. One last thing on college football before we move on and talk a little bit about video games. I'm wondering what players you're looking at as potential Heisman Trophy candidates going into the season. Well, that's a good one. Yeah, I'll I'll be honest with you. I haven't really thought about it too much. But the one one guy that I think is hands down a Heisman candidate is Andrew Luck at Stanford. You saw what he did last year. Stud. I think he's going to do a lot of the same this year. So I think that's an easy pick. Um, I haven't really thought about too much of some of the other players. So I'll probably look at Oregon. You know, I'm sure they're going to have some players that are going to be worth watching, and we'll we'll see how we'll see who emerges in the SEC. I think uh, there's probably going to be some unknown, well, not really unknown, but some player that we don't really know of right now too much. And I think if their team starts to do well, they probably emerge as a candidate. So I mean, it's. Pretty much a dark horse right now, I think. Are you surprised that uh, Andrew Luck stayed in school? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Because I really think if you look at the quarterbacks that are coming out this year, there, there's no doubt he would be the top guy. And I, I give him all the credit in the world for deciding to go back to school. Uh, if you know, if he says it's for finishing up his education, I have no ill will towards that. I think that's a great move. I just hope that he doesn't get injured or anything during the season, which has happened to guys before. Yeah, it happened if to Sam Bradford. Sam Bradford. Yep. Sam Bradford, yeah, he was a perfect example. He, If he decided to come out a year earlier, he probably would have been top guy, but, you know. I guess I, it all worked, it's, well it's worked out move, for him. It's a little bit surprising, though. Yeah, it all worked for Sam Bradford. I wonder if the Sam Bradford situation came into it, because Bradford came back, got injured, barely played, and he was still the first overall pick. So, you know, I wonder if that was just an element of, you know, not finding much risk. But, uh, Kevin, you can find your work on college football at CFBExaminer.com, on Twitter at at CFBExaminer. Uh, Pretty cool site right now. It looks like there's uh, Larry the Trick Shot Long Snapper is the first story. I guess he's a, a trick long snapper. Check that out. And also some stuff on Ohio State and some really cool videos on the blog. So make sure you check it out. Now. Another thing you do, which is very exciting, is you talk about video games. And one of the really interesting stories in the video game world right now is Nintendo confirming that the new Wii system will be out in 2012. What do you expect the new Wii system to look like? I know Nintendo's been pretty hush-hush about the details, but what do your instincts tell you the new Wii is going to be like? Uh, if you're talking about what the actual console is going to look like, I'm still kind of wondering myself because I have I have this vision of kind of like a, a Wii that's kind of sitting on its side. I don't know. I mean, you can sit a Wii on its side. I usually stand my Wii just standing straight up. Um, so I'm imagining something that lays more traditionally. It's probably going to be a little bigger because there's probably going to be a whole lot more power on the inside of it. Um, I don't really know because there's a lot of people right now, obviously people in the video game world are trying to 
come up with concept art for what things may look like. And there's some people that say it's going to be like a cross between the Wii and the old Super Nintendo, which, you know, yeah, whatever. I don't know. I don't really care what it looks like, to be honest with you. I'm just curious what it's going to be like when you hook it up to the TV and you get it going. Yeah, a lot of people have said it, it should be more powerful than the PS3. I wonder about motion gaming. Do you think that that's a bit of a dying fad? Um, what trend do you think might follow the same path? 3D or? Yeah, yeah. When it comes to the stuff like this, I'm more, I'm more uh, backward thinking, I think, than most people. I actually prefer holding a controller in my hand with the control, the, 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 the control stick and the, the, uh, the buttons on the one side. I've always just thought that that's the best way to play a game. I understand that right now we're in this motion gaming frenzy right now. I think it is going to die out eventually. I think it's kind of jumped the shark a little bit. Maybe that's just because I haven't played enough of those games, but I, I don't really see the big draw to it. I mean, when I think of video games, I want to be on the couch or in front of the TV or you know, maybe in a comfortable lounge chair or something like that. But that's just who I am. I, I'm, I'm more old school, I guess you can say. Everyone's going crazy right now on Portal 2. Are you a Portal 2 guy? And if so, how do you like the game? If not, what do you think about the overall uh, strategy that they used as far as launching the game? You know what? I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not real into that game. And that's probably just because I started covering this video game stuff really recently. So I kind of missed that whole jump. So I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the whole campaign was like. Although I will say from the videos I've seen of the game, it looks really cool. <laughs> that's, all I, that's all I really know, unfortunately. Sorry about that. That's okay. Duke Nukem Forever, finally coming out. I know it's been a game that, that has been teased about for a long time. Are you excited mm -hmm. for that one? I'm excited to see what that's going to be like because I've I played a couple of the older Duke Nukem games. It's been a while since I've played anything in that franchise. But this is the game that people have been waiting for for years now. I mean, it looks like it's finally going to be available and I think that's going to be a, a big story in that industry. Um, I'm interested to see what the reception's like for that game. I think it's going to have a lot to live up to because people have been wanting to see this game for a long time now. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can live up to the expectations of everybody and see what what kind of new features they can bring to pretty much what's a, uh, a, a cult classic, I guess you could say. What's going on with the PlayStation Network's extended maintenance, quote-unquote? Yeah, I mean, that's really bizarre. I mean, it's been down for a couple of days now, I guess. So they say that there's some kind of third-party issue that they're trying to work on behind the scenes. Um, it doesn't sound like there's any major security threat, I guess, but any time a third party is involved, you kind of raise some questions like, how did that happen? Uh, what can they do to fix it? Because I'm, I'm sure it's a big pain to a lot of people out there who go on and use the network on a daily basis. So I, I don't really know uh, how soon it'll be back, but I'm sure they're working on it around the clock because it would be a real shame to have it down much longer. You know, I used to, I, you know, I got a PS3, I have a Wii, and I used to have a DS, and then I got an iPhone, and ever since I've had the iPhone and then finally the iPad, I kind of found myself not really playing the DS ever, and I wonder if iOS gaming and Android and things like that do you think that the cheapness of the games is why uh, they seem to be taking a hold of that market, or is it the convenience? Do you still play a portable game system, or do you find yourself just playing games on your phone? What do you think about that? 
I think the the appeal to games on your mobile phones is the fact that they're they're quick. Generally, they're real easy to download. They're real easy to just pick up and start playing. So if you're in a long line at at the movies, or you're I mean you're sitting in the theater waiting for the movie, or you're waiting in a long line at the grocery store, or something you have something that'll keep you occupied. And I think that's really where these games have started to really become big because we've become a society where we almost have to be doing something with our phones. So if we're not tweeting or texting or something like that, odds are you're going to be playing a game. So maybe you're playing Angry Birds or something like that. So it's it's real fascinating the way that that whole area of the gaming industry has really blossomed in the past couple of years. So I mean, you can credit you can credit the iPhone, you can credit the iPad, and all these other phones for that. Um, but I still think that there's a market for uh, the portable console games that we're used to playing. So, so I mean, this is what Nintendo has been living on for years, and I think they're still dedicated to doing that. And I think that. They're still trying to find ways to take back some of that market that has gone to these mobile these mobile games or these mobile phones. So I mean, it's it's just a whole as the industry or as time goes by, everything evolves, I guess. And it, I'm kind of curious if that trend will hold up. Yeah, you know, just in my own experience, you know, the last couple of days, I downloaded NBA Jam for my iPad, ten bucks. <laughs> you know, I I downloaded Tiger Woods twelve, ten bucks. And with Tiger Woods, I mean, I've bought the last six or seven editions of the video game, but I kind of rather enjoy the iPad version. I don't know if I need to spend an extra $50 on uh, Tiger Woods for the PS3, you know, and I, I think that's an interesting dilemma for uh, video game systems as the, as it progresses here down the road. Yeah, I, th- I think it's all a matter of personal preference. I mean, I think the people that make these games, they realize that there's a market to sell their more traditional games that you get at the store and you know, take it home and un- un- shrink wrap the box and everything and put it in your console. And they realize that maybe those games are a little pricey. Maybe they're a little more complicated. So they come out with a, a, a lighter version, I guess. Um, I'm not saying that they're any worse, but maybe it's just for a different kind of audience. And it, it seems to be working for them because why else would they be releasing games on the iPad when they can have... The, the PlayStation 3 game for 60 bucks or something like that. Yeah, it, it's it's an incredible option. I mean, just in terms of value, you know, to play Tiger Woods on the iPad for $10 or whatever it was as compared to the $60 one, it's just, it works mm-hmm. for me. And, you know, I, I can never see myself, I'm a big Madden guy too, I can never see myself wanting to play Madden on the iPad. I think I'll still be a sucker and wait in line every year for the three or four <laughs> different changes or whatever they do. But um, right. what do you, are you a Madden guy, or do you play the college football game? Do you get the EA Sports games every year? What do you think about you know going back to the well year after year with these uh, EA Sports games? Well, I, I mean, I've played Madden since the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis days. Same here. Uh, although I haven't, I haven't bought the game every year. I, I usually went every couple of years because I didn't see that much of a difference between them. Or if I had a new, if I had a new uh, system. I had to make sure I had a Madden for that one. So I probably got it the first year I had a new system. Um, but it's been a while since I bought either the Madden game or the NCAA game. I've always been more of an, a college football guy. That's probably just because I'm more of a college football fan. Um, but I, I think this year I'm actually going to go out and pick up one of each copy because it's, it's been so long and I just need to get I need to get that fixed again, I guess. Yeah. What would you? How shocked would you be if Peyton Hillis ends up on the cover of Madden? It, you think that that whole tournament is going to backfire on them if Peyton Hillis is the guy they have to put on in the front? 
it, it's fascinating what has been going on there. For people who haven't been really paying attention to this, uh, these guys at EA, they set up this whole March Madness-type tournament where fans can vote for one player. They had one player for each team, and they paired them up with division rivals at first, and then they each advance. Whoever gets the most votes in one week moves on to the next round. And I think they were hoping that it would be Aaron Rodgers with the uh, Super Bowl MVP and everything, but yep. they're in a situation where they have Peyton Hills from the Cleveland Browns of all teams <laughs> and Mike Vick with all the baggage that comes with him. I mean, it, it's, it's almost a PR nightmare uh, either way. So yeah. it's, it's real fascinating. It's to talk about the all-time backfire. It's the biggest one since Happy Gilmore scored that goal when he was out on the date with Julia, Julia Bennett. But yeah, it's it's pretty interesting because I just I just can't picture Peyton Hillis. I mean, he's a guy who was cut like a year ago, and I know he had a fantastic season. It yeah. almost reminds me too of when Sanjaya uh, was uh, moving from round to round in American Idol and the vote for the worst uh, Howard Stern controversy. But Kevin, where can yeah, we? Yeah, you know it's 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 what it is doing, it's showing you the power of social media because not to take anything away from, uh, anything away from Hillis, obviously, but you're seeing the, the Cleveland Browns as an organization get behind the, the idea of getting their player on the cover of the most popular football game in the country. And they've gone on Facebook, on their website, on Twitter. They're getting all their fans to get on board and pile the, uh, the votes in for them. So it, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, we're going to find out on Wednesday. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know when you're posting this podcast, but if it's on Tuesday, you're going to find out tomorrow if it's all successful or not. Yeah, it will be interesting. Hey, where do we find your writing on college football? Or, I'm sorry, on video games? You know, I could give you the really long address, but it would be it's the way that it's all set up, it's really long and complicated. So I would just advise people... You know, just like I have a Twitter account for my college football stuff, I have one for the video game stuff too. So I keep kind, of, so I can uh, keep them separate and work, worry about two different audiences and not worry about blending them together. But if you just go on Twitter and you follow VG Examiner, all one word, you'll have all my links and updates and everything like that. And it'll have a link to the the columns that I have put up. Perfect. So you can find Kevin at CFB Examiner and VG Examiner, correct? That's correct. All right, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for keeping us on our toes with our pronunciation of names. I think uh, there's <laughs> there's a couple of challenges here in the draft. I know when you listen back to this, you might have to get on my case. I, I've been trying to avoid talking about Nebraska's cornerback as much as possible uh, because I just know I'm bound to butcher that one two or three times. But um, <laughs> it's, it's Oh, man. <laughs> Tough. Tough for a guy like me. I, I, I blow these names. I don't know why. I need to go to name pronunciation school. But uh, uh, it was fun having you on. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Absolutely. I enjoyed it, and hopefully we can do it again soon, like you said. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Kevin. Oh, go Sabres. Oh, yeah. Go Flyers. <laughs> talk to you later, buddy. This is Tammy, and you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. Alright, the Sportscasters back here for one last segment, episode 17, just about in the books. I want to thank our guests, Wes Bunting from the National Football Post. You can find him on Twitter, at Wes Bunting. 
Also, I want to thank Pete Williams, the author of the book The Draft and Card Sharks. You can find him at www.petewilliams.net and at petewilliams7. And also want to thank Kevin McGuire, a new friend of the podcast. Uh, you can find him at the College Football Examiner website at CFB Examiner and also at VG Examiner uh, for his video game work. I want to thank him. Uh, long show today, but uh, really good. also want to thank Anthony for joining us off the top for three things. Um, pick four is going, went a lot better last week, Don. It's good. We went a combined five and three last week. <laughs> I went three and one, winning the Sabres over the Flyers, one to nothing. The Capitals over the Rangers, four to three in overtime, and the Ducks over the Predators, six to three. I lost. The Kings have not eliminated the Sharks. It ended up being the opposite, but the Sharks certainly had, or the Kings certainly had every opportunity to win that series. And uh, yeah, never count out a uh, Ryan Smith team, even minus their number one scorer. Uh, they just always perform, and they battled. If they, if they yeah. wouldn't have blown that four to nothing game at home, oh yeah, I think they would have won the series. So yeah, no lead was safe this year. So I far. was three and one, and ended up uh, I'm thirty four and thirty one right now. That's Don's record as well. He went two and two last week, winning the Sabers over the Flyers one to nothing, Capitals over the Rangers four to three, losing the Coyotes over yeah. the Red Wings. They didn't get a Poor game. Phoenix. And uh, game seven, he said there wouldn't be any. There may be a record amount. <laughs> <laughs> so he went on bold. that one. I went real bold. But uh, you can kick us off with the uh, game of the week. Uh, the game of the week is Tampa Bay at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had a nice, comfortable lead. Uh, it's now going to go to a game seven where I will take Tampa, who is something of the hot team, on the road. And I just read some stat that said since the lockout, I believe, or maybe it was the diff- – I can't remember the exact year, but uh, road teams are two and eight – or. I'm getting this all backwards. I think road teams are like 8-2 and two in Game 7s for some odd reason. All right, I'm actually going to take the home team. I'm going to take the Penguins. I don't know why. I, I just – I guess I like Marc-Andre Fleury better than I like Dwayne. Dwayne. Roll so, the goalie. Yeah, roll the goalie. So that's why I'll, I'll take the Penguins. All right, my host choice this game, I'm going to stick with hockey and another Game 7. I'm going to take Chicago, uh, who is surprisingly like on the money line, a big underdog. Even though they've won the last three, uh, they're the big dog at Vancouver. I will take them to win. And uh, since I'm terrible at picking hockey games, Vancouver fans should be excited about that. <laughs> My host choice is another hockey game as well. It is game six of the Canadians on Bruins series. I'm going to pick the Canadians just because it seems like everyone's going to game seven. So why not the <laughs> Canadians and Bruins as well? That game six is tonight, I believe, and game seven would be tomorrow tomorrow if they make it there yeah it's weird must have been so i will take the canadians to beat the bruins okay six in game six right and uh my worldwide leader pick uh tomorrow night wednesday 9 30 p.m eastern on tnt the denver nuggets will play oklahoma city and i'm going to take oklahoma city at home in game five to close out the series my worldwide leader pick is exactly the same i picked oklahoma city to beat denver close out that series wednesday on TNT, we uh, did not plan that. No. Just worked that way. <laughs> my bold prediction, sticking with my uh, very bold predictions, I'm going to say the Sabres do win tonight, and by the time we come back for the next podcast, we'll have a 2 nothing lead on Washington. I said before that I would have liked to see them play Washington, and Washington played better than I thought, and I backed off that statement a little bit. But I think the Sabres right now, if they can get out of this round, they're not going to face a team that's offensively deeper than Philly. So if they can 
shore up the defense a little bit and score timely goals. Again, it'll be Miller against the other team's goalie, and I think they fare pretty well in a series with Washington. I agree. The Sabres do have a very good shot at going pretty far in this thing if they can get past tonight. My bold prediction is that the Sabres, the Penguins, Bruins, and Canucks will all play in round two. So I will take the four of them as a group. Um, I like the Sabres tonight. I like the Bruins or the Penguins as well. I think the Bruins will eventually beat Montreal. And uh, I think the Canucks are not going to let that thing slip away and they will get game seven. So my vote prediction is that all four of those teams as a group will end up in round two. Sounds good. Okay, just a couple of things. Again, thank you for listening tonight. A pretty good show. We're excited for the NFL draft on Thursday. I will be writing a NFL draft blog, kind of a live blog as the draft goes on round one on Thursday at the Canal Street Chronicles. So you're, if, if you're interested in that, you can follow along with that. I can do that, too. I've been slacking on the blogs. I can make myself available for uh, – I like the live blogging during the NHL draft. So I'll, it's going to be very uninformed. I'm not the biggest college <laughs> guy. But it, from an uninformed, casual draft uh, college football observer, I will post my observations, too. And uh, that will be found at w- – or I'm sorry, the sportscasters.blogspot.com. You can find a picture essay I did for Game 4, which I thought turned out pretty cool there. And Don's thoughts on the draft will be posted there as well. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. Again, we are at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Like Sports. And I am at Diversity23. Give us a like on Facebook. That's been going pretty good. Facebook.com slash the sportscasters. And uh, don't forget to email us. We are the sportscasters at gmail.com. Don, you can cue the hip. We'll see you next week. All right.